0: Chapter 1, we're going to cover all of Second Thessalonians this evening. But again, first, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our Bible study. Father, we thank you for what you're doing in our lives and in our church. We thank you for the good time that uh, the moms and the sons had on Friday night. All of the good things you're doing here at Calvary Chapel, Lord, we're glad to be a part of them. And we ask, Lord, that you continue to work through us, Lord. So many needs around us, Lord. Help us to be other-centered people. And help us, Lord, to try to share with others the wonderful grace and mercy we've found in Jesus Christ. Bless us tonight, Lord, as we study your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Customers of a bank in Warwick, Rhode Island, were recently duped. An official-looking sign in the foyer of the bank instructed depositors to put their money in a newly installed drop box. The sign indicated that the regular night deposit was out of order. And during the long Labor Day weekend that followed, customer after customer dropped their money in what proved to be a bogus box. Tuesday morning, just before the bank opened, the crooks removed the box. And they made off with thousands and thousands of dollars. The police captain commented, This was a well thought out and professional crime. Everybody fell for it. They were duped. And likewise, the Thessalonians were duped by a well-thought-out crime, a carefully constructed scheme, a doctrinal deception. Spiritual crooks, you see, had stolen their hope. A letter had been written to the Thessalonians in Paul's name. It stated that the Lord Jesus had already returned for his church and that the Thessalonians had been left behind. The believers were in a panic. They were certainly perplexed and puzzled. And Paul writes 2 Thessalonians to refute this deception, to straighten out the confusion. He wants to restore to the Thessalonians their God-given hope for the future. Paul begins by telling the Thessalonians that he thanks God for them. That he boasts about them to other churches. Paul really loved them. Paul prayed for them and was proud of them. I've heard it said, a real friend warms you with his presence, trusts you with his secrets, and remembers you in his prayers. If that's the case, and I'm sure it is, there has never been a better friend than Paul. In all his letters, he prays for his fellow believers. In verse 4, Paul encourages the Thessalonians. He says, We ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. You see, Paul was proud of their faith under fire. Peterson paraphrases verse 4, We're so proud of you. You're so steady and determined in your faith, despite all the hard times that have come down on you. Remember, the Thessalonians were what we might call wartime babies. They were born in the midst of persecution. Acts 17 recounts how the leaders in Thessalonica were arrested and how Paul and Silas were run out of town. And yet, through it all, these believers in Jesus remained faithful to their Lord. The Thessalonians, you see, were overcomers. So... Is Brother Samsul. Samsul, along with Hussein Lasker, both Gospel for Asian missionaries, were sharing the Gospel in the Indian village of Nagaland. The two men were attacked by a group of Muslims. Hussein was murdered. Samsul was stabbed six times and left for dead. But after just a month in the hospital, Brother Samsul returned to the village where he had been brutalized. He explained, he told a reporter, As a Muslim convert, it is my heart's desire that my people be one to Christ. And after returning to the village that persecuted him, Samson led 11 people to Jesus Christ and baptized them into the church. He says, praise the Lord. Just as in history, the blood of the martyrs has become the seeds of the church. That's an overcomer. Guys, if believers in other parts of the world can endure physical attacks and wrongful imprisonments, and cruel torture, and yet remain steady and determined in their faith, don't you think you and I can put up with a little office alienation? A little social ridicule? Don't you think we can stand tall even if we're the butt of someone's joke? Let's also be overcomers and be faithful in the midst of persecution. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul commends the church for their faith and their love. But what about their hope? You remember back in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 3, Paul spoke of their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope. Here in 2 Thessalonians, their faith and their love are still intact. But between the writing of these two letters, apparently something had happened to their hope. It seems that their hope had been stolen. Their hope had been ripped off. Remember at the close of the Atlanta Olympics when the IOC president, Juan Antonio Samaranch, congratulated the city of Atlanta for putting on, as he said, a most exceptional summer Olympics. But the Atlanta game, well, you normally he says, uh, he said the most exceptional summer games. And you remember the brouhaha that resulted from it. His comment sent the Atlanta organizers into an uproar. And why? Do you remember why? Well, traditionally, the Olympic boss always calls each succeeding Olympics the best ever Olympics. But the Atlanta games were just a most exceptional Olympics. And we got all upset about it. Notice, though, it was not what he said, but it was what he didn't say that snubbed the city of Atlanta. Sometimes it's not what's said that should concern us, but it's what's not said. And that's the point here. Conspicuously absent from Paul's affirmation of these Thessalonians is the mention of their hope. What's happened to their hope? We're going to find out over in chapter 2. But first, Paul continues to supply comfort and assurance to these persecuted Thessalonians. And he does it in a very surprising way with prophecy. He wows them with a vivid description of Jesus' return to this earth in judgment. It's interesting how pain can distort our perspective. You know, when you're wounded in battle, you're tempted to focus on the immediate hurt rather than on the ultimate outcome. And in chapter 1, Paul reminds the Thessalonians that they're on the winning team, that it may not be visible at the moment, but in the end, Jesus will win. Paul uses an end-time certainty to comfort them in their present distress. He makes an astounding comment in verse 5. Paul calls the faith of the Thessalonians the manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Now that's amazing. Paul informs these baby Christians, understand, they're just a few months old in the Lord. He says that when the end of time comes, when judgment is poured out on the earth, when Jesus fights the Antichrist in his armies in the battle of Armageddon, when Messiah crushes the serpent's head, when Satan and his allies are annihilated and obliterated, at that moment, God will turn and he will point to the Thessalonians, these baby Christians, and to the other Christians who've been persecuted throughout the ages and he'll say to those wicked that he's judged, There, I did this to you because of what you did to my kids. Hey, nothing angers our Father God more than when the world mistreats His kids. And one day when judgment comes down, they're going to see just how much He loves you and me. We are the manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. But Paul goes on and he says in verses 5-7, through that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. He tells us that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Let's imagine that my son goes out for the high school baseball team. He's by far one of the better players, but because of some politics. Another kid gets more playing time than him. And I feel that an injustice has been done. And I agree to talk to the coach. I plan to deal with the situation following that afternoon's game. And I'm ready to do just that. But that particular game turns out to be the worst game of my son's career. He gets to play. And he strikes out every at bat. He makes a dozen errors in the field. Now, I gave him my word that I would deal with the situation. And I will talk to the coach. But my son's poor performance has sure weakened my argument, hasn't it? This is what you do to God. If you don't live worthy of the kingdom. If you retaliate when persecuted if you grow bitter and sour in the midst of difficulties, if you don't respond to tribulation in grace and love, God will still judge the world, but you got to know it's going to weaken His argument. The wicked world can point to the Christian and can accuse God, Hey, why are you judging us when your own kids never lived any better than we did? At the second coming of Jesus, justice will be restored. Sin will be repaid. The righteous will be relieved. When the smoke clears and Jesus is seen, He will be the only one left standing on the battlefield. And a sigh of relief will be heard from all the saints. Evil will have finally been punished. But we don't give the evildoers a reason to accuse God. That should be our goal. Not to give them a reason to accuse God of unfairness. By pointing out how that we committed the same sins for which they were judged. Our lives should strengthen, not undermine, God's case against wickedness. I'm sure you know that God has scheduled a main event. Jesus is coming to slug it out with Satan. Today there's a lot of sparring going on. But one day, the devil will get knocked out. Jesus will come back and finish the battle. The second coming of Jesus is described in chapter 1, verse 8. We're told the Lord comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice why people are judged. It boils down to their attitude about Jesus, whether they have obeyed or rejected the gospel. Today, Jesus is mocked and He's ridiculed. His followers are treated with equal disdain. But verse 9 tells us that on Judgment Day, Jesus will be admired by the whole world. And you and I, the church, will be revealed as His greatest work, His masterpiece. They'll glorify Jesus in us. Oh, how the tables will one day be turned. The fiery trials the Thessalonians had endured will be fought with fire. They have shared in Jesus' rejection In the final day, they'll share in His glory. Perhaps the battle's raging around you today. Perhaps you too have suffered for your stand for Jesus Christ. If so, take heart. Your team will win in the end. Be bold. Be brave. Believe. Chapter 2 opens. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ... And our gathering together to Him. Now this was a subject that Paul had introduced back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The rapture of the church. One day soon. Jesus will come in the clouds. And He'll snatch away His church. It will happen in a twinkle. In a split second. A nanosecond. Our earthly bodies will be transformed into eternal bodies. And we will be gathered to Jesus in the air. Paul had not left the Thessalonians up in the air over the rapture. He had given them the straight scoop. Their confusion had come from elsewhere. False information had been disseminated. And Paul confronts it in verse 2. He says, We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, As though the day of Christ had come. The day of Christ is a synonym for the day of the Lord. In fact, the New International Version and the New American Standard Version and some of the other newer translations, they actually say the day of the Lord. But what has happened to the Thessalonians' hope? Someone had told them that they had missed the rapture. Someone had told them that the day of the Lord, God's judgments on the earth had already begun. And with the fierce persecution that they were experiencing, it would have been easy for them to have drawn that conclusion. They'd even sent them a letter, supposedly from Paul, proclaiming these things. Remember, today is the day of man. For the most part, mankind is having his say on planet earth. But God will one day soon crash the party. He'll intervene in the affairs of man and have his say. Daniel chapter 9 speaks of the seven-year period, the final period of history, in which man's dominion of planet Earth will be destroyed. During those seven years, God will rain down his wrath on the wicked. In the process, he will purify Israel, and he will usher in the physical manifestation of the kingdom of God. That entire period of seven years, that period of history yet future that starts with the rapture and culminates with the coming of Christ and the beginning of the kingdom, that period of time in the scripture is referred to as the day of the Lord. That's the day the Lord will have his say on planet earth. What scared the Thessalonians was the possibility that they had missed the rapture and that they had been tossed into this period of great tribulation. In fact, they had even received a letter, supposedly from Paul, that confirmed their fears. Paul assures them that the letter was a forgery, that the Thessalonians had been duped. It reminds me of a 31-year-old man in Clearwater, Florida. His name is Warren Scudder. And Scudder gets his kicks, gets his jollies from calling 911. Fourteen times in three years, he called in a false emergency. Scudder's now in the slammer. But when he was arrested by the police, he told them that he enjoyed watching fire trucks and flashing lights. Apparently, Warren Scudder enjoys creating a panic. Well, a spiritual Warren Scudder had set off an alarm in the church in Thessalonica. The saints were panicked, but they had no reason to be. Remember, there are two types of tribulation spoken of in Scripture. One is the tribulation that the world dishes out upon the church. Jesus warned us about that. In the world, you will have tribulation. But the other form of tribulation, the great tribulation, is the tribulation that God brings on the world after His church has been airlifted out. Jesus told us that we would have to endure this first type of tribulation, that which the world brings upon the church, but not the tribulation that God pours out upon the world. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 promises, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, we were told, Even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Tragically, the persecution the Thessalonians were experiencing was so intense that they mistook it for the great tribulation, and they were afraid that they had missed the rapture. Paul says in verse 3, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. Now people today get confused with this verse by interpreting the phrase that day as the rapture. Guys, it's bigger than the rapture that day in the context refers back to the day of Christ or as we've been talking about the day of the Lord which includes all end time events beginning with the rapture but including the second coming and ending with the kingdom age and the new heaven and the new earth. Here's the logic that Paul uses in verse 3. If events unfold A, then B, then C and you don't see B and C, that lets you know that A hasn't happened yet. You understand that? Simple enough? In other words, if you were in the Great Tribulation, if you had missed the rapture, then certain prophesied events would have already occurred. But because you haven't seen them, you know A hasn't happened yet. It's as if I were giving directions to Calvary Chapel from Stone Mountain. I would probably end them by saying, and if you wind up in Snellville, you've gone too far. In essence, this is what Paul says. You know you haven't missed the rapture if you haven't seen what comes afterwards. The falling away and the man of sin. First, the falling away. The Greek word actually means departure. And it's interpreted by most Bible scholars as a departure from the faith. In other words, an apostasy will invade Christianity. Mainline churches will abandon the faith. They will scoff at the inerrancy of Scripture. They'll embrace the New Age, a neglected, tolerant gospel that accommodates all other religious persuasions. Hey, if we're not witnessing the beginning of the falling away, we're getting very close. But Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest also has another interesting theory on this expression, the falling away. He points out that the Greek word can also be a reference to the rapture of the church or the departure of the church from planet earth. That would support the idea that the day of the Lord doesn't begin until the church is snatched away. But again, have we seen that great falling away? Not yet. The rapture comes first. And second, he says... That if the rapture had already taken place, you would have seen the man of sin. The man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. The final seven years of great tribulation spoken of in Daniel chapter 9 begins when a world leader, a.k.a. the man of sin or the Antichrist, makes a covenant or a treaty with the nation Israel. If you piece various passages together, the Antichrist will surface as a leader of a confederacy of ten European nations. From Europe, he will expand his power and rule the world. And at the midpoint of those final seven years of Great Tribulation, he'll violate his agreement with Israel and he'll desecrate the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. We're told in verse 4 that he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God The Antichrist or the man of sin will turn on the apostate religion that catapults him to power and he will set himself up as God, a diabolical person, an evil, sinister man. But again, Paul is saying, look, if you had missed the rapture, you would have seen the falling away and you would have seen the man of sin. The fact that you've seen neither means that you're still waiting on the rapture. Guys, understand. We're not looking for judgment. We're looking for Jesus. That's why we believe the rapture begins before all those things happen. Paul instructs us in verses five through seven. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. The Antichrist may be alive in the world today. We don't know. But we do know that the spirit of the Antichrist is certainly all around us. The Greek prefix anti has two meanings. It can mean against or it can mean instead of. And Satan is both. Satan is against God and he wants to replace God. He wants to be worshiped instead of God. Originally, Satan was an angel who fell from heaven. It was because of his jealousy. Apparently, he had tired of worship. He had tired of worshiping God and he desired worship for himself. Throughout history, Satan has deceived men into assuming that God was the bad guy and that he is the good guy. In doing so, he has tried to divert their worship from God onto himself. Now, according to Paul, the forces of evil that are at work in the world today are so strong that they would completely take over if it were not for God's restraining force. And what is this restraining force? He says, he who now restrains. I personally believe that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit within the church. Not the Holy Spirit per se, for there are passages that that indicate the Spirit will continue to be at work after the rapture and during the tribulation. But the restrainer is the Holy Spirit working in the church. We look around at the world today at the blasphemy and the immorality, at the rise of the occult, at the legitimizing of paganism and the prevalence of secularism. And we realize that the situation is bad. But understand, the world ain't seen nothing yet. Today, the Spirit's testimony through the church is holding back. It's restraining this rising tide of evil on the job, in the neighborhood, at school, among your family, whether you're conscious of it or not. It's your belief in God. It's your love for Jesus Christ. It's the Holy Spirit working in you that's keeping the devil and his demons at bay. Your witness is preventing evil from running rampant in this world. But when the rapture occurs, when this restraining force is no longer on the earth, when the church vacates, Satan is going to have a heyday. There will be no more resistance. And all hell will break loose on planet earth. Trust me, you don't want to be around after the rapture. Verse 8 says that when the church is gone, the Antichrist will then take over. And he is the one, according to chapter 2 verse 8, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of His coming. Revelation 19 talks about the battle of Armageddon and how the Antichrist will rally the armies of the world to that plain just north of Jerusalem. And there the armies will gather together to fight against Christ, to keep Him from returning and taking back what belongs to Him. They will, have, they will be gathered for a colossal showdown. All the armies, all of the earth's power will be mounted in that one place, aimed at preventing Jesus from returning to this earth. But it won't be much of a battle. Because the Lord will consume them with His breath. <laughs> They'll all be dead. He'll destroy them with the mere shimmer, the glimmer, the brightness of His glory. You've heard of breath that could kill? <laughs> well, on that day, Jesus is going to have breath that could kill. He's going to just blow on that old blowhard, the Antichrist, and He'll vaporize him in a second. The man of sin will melt in the brightness of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the end, it won't be much of a battle at all. In 1588, the British had defeated the Spanish Armada. And Admiral Drake invited Queen Elizabeth to come and to pass out medals to his deserving sailors. She agreed. But beforehand, Drake commanded all of his sailors. He said, On account of of the dazzling loveliness of Her Majesty, all men, upon receiving their prizes, should shield their eyes with their right hand. And thus was born the military salute. Paul is telling us beforehand that the only protection from the searing heat of the glory of Jesus Christ is a salute Unless you bow, unless you pledge your allegiance to Jesus, one day you'll be destroyed by the brightness of His glory, by the brilliance of His coming. Paul tells us more about the Antichrist in chapter 2, verse 9. He says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Understand, guys, Satan's power is real. Satan's wonders are legit. You remember, Moses turned his rod into a serpent. But the magicians of Pharaoh's court were able to duplicate the the same miracle, weren't they? They too were able to work wonders. Of course, Moses' rod swallowed up their rods, proving that God was greater. But they did have power. And the Antichrist will likewise be a miracle man. He'll perform wonders. But notice, Paul calls them lying wonders. You see, God uses his miracles to draw men to the truth, whereas Satan uses miracles to sell his lies. In verse 10, Paul says that the Antichrist will work unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. In essence, once you've rejected the truth of the gospel, you'll fall for anything else. And because the world rejected the truth of the gospel, verse 11 says, For this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Notice, this is not just a lie, but the lie, a strong delusion. Now, now what would you think would be the lie? Perhaps it was the first lie. The lie that ended our stay in the Garden of Eden. The lie that spoiled everything in the first place. Eve believed the lie that she could be her own God. You see, self-deification is the theme of the false religions in the world today. Eastern mysticism, New Age philosophy. It's all the belief that the God force dwells within each of us. Use the force, Luke. It's the idea that you have the power to shape your own reality, that you can be your own God. Today, this kind of self-worship dominates popular culture. It could be the strong delusion, the lie that unites the world in the worship of the beast. Notice the state of man in the end times, verse 12 who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You know, you, you really think, why would anybody want to be their own God? As you, you're opting for a pretty wimpy God. You know, why would anybody want to be their own God? Well, there's one reason. If you're your own God, you can set your own rules. You can justify whatever you like. And that's what he says here, who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But one day, God condemns those who bought into the devil's evil deception. Paul knew that the world was full of wickedness, but he thanked God for the Thessalonians. These believers were a source of hope. In a world fraught with problems, they, the Thessalonians, that church, was part of the solution. And every time I think of our church, I get just as proud. We, we do live in a wicked world. But you guys, this church is part of the solution. And thus he encourages them in verse 15. He says, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by epistle. This is a re- reoccurring theme really throughout the New Testament. Paul says it's not enough to hear once and believe. We need to hold fast the things we learn and continue in our faith. Paul ends chapter 2 with a prayer. In chapter 2, verse 16, he addresses God as He who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. This was Paul's desire. He wanted the Thessalonians and us to be sure of our good hope that the grace of God is purchased for us. That's why I am adamant in a pre-tribulational rapture It's our God-given hope. It's the hope that God has given to us that purifies us, that prompts us to be ready at any time. I'm not looking for judgment. I'm looking for Jesus and I'm looking for Him at any moment. In chapter 3, Paul makes a prayer request. He asks the Thessalonians to pray that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. It's been said... That God's word is like a lion. You know, if a lion is threatened. If someone is picking on a lion. You don't worry about defending the lion. You just let it out of its cage. It'll defend itself. And that's what Paul is saying here about the word of God. Don't worry about defending the word of God. Just turn it loose. It'll defend itself. It'll go out and accomplish that for which it was sent. He says that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified. But that's what we ought to be praying. Lord, turn your word loose on this community. Let the word of the Lord run swiftly throughout Atlanta, Georgia. Pray that God will turn it loose. And as it spreads, Paul knows it will overcome its critics by transforming their hearts. Paul is up against unreasonable and wicked men. And he asks for prayer He also knows, as he confesses in verse 3, the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. What a marvelous promise. The enemy is unreasonable and wicked, but God is faithful to protect his kids. Aren't you glad you're one of them? I'll never forget when I was in high school, at South Gwinnett, we were scheduled to play Forsyth County in a football game. And at the time, Forsyth County had the reputation for being a bigoted, very prejudiced place. We were scheduled for the game, and we had a running back who was really the star of our team. He was an African-American, and he was a fabulous player. But the coach heard that he had started to get cold feet. Keith wasn't sure that he wanted to make the trip to Forsyth County. He didn't feel real comfortable up in Forsyth County. And when the coach heard that Keith was thinking about skipping the trip, he called Keith into his office. <laughs> and I'll never forget what he said. Coach Johnson said to Keith, he said, Keith, don't you worry, son. If anybody tries to land, lay a hand on you, they're going to have to go through me to get to you. They've got to go through me first, son. But then the coach paused and he added, But Keith, if they get through me, buddy, you're on your own. (laughs) Here Paul boldly assures us, The Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And unlike my coach, no one can get through Jesus. Aren't you glad? Paul says in chapter 3, verse 5, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God, And into the patience of Christ. What a tremendous verse. Think this verse through for a moment. There's no greater truth known to man than Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. But so often I wander from that truth. Do you ever wander from that truth? Do you ever stray away from that truth? There are times when the love of God feels distant and remote. And in those times, my prayer needs to be, Lord, direct my heart back into your love. Keep bringing me back, Lord, over and over with a fresh taste of your love for me. That's what Paul prays. Now may the Lord direct your heart into the love of God. When my heart for God grows cold, it's because I've lost touch with His love for me. The more I am directed into the love of God, the more my love for God grows. In verse 6, Paul calls for church discipline. Fellowship in God's family is, a, is not a right, it's a privilege. And under certain situations, it needs to be withdrawn. The church isn't an open membership for just anybody. People guilty of disorderly conduct or heretical beliefs need to be cut out of the congregation lest they contaminate the whole. And in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3, Paul puts it this way, And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person, and do not keep company with them that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Whenever we do disfellowship A brother, it's never to condemn them, it's always to correct them. We might withdraw fellowship, but we must never withdraw love. Apparently, due to their emphasis on the end times, there were Thessalonian believers who had decided to sit out life, to just stay on the sidelines and wait on the rapture. Why go to work today if Jesus is coming back and I'm going to heaven tomorrow? The problem, though, is that Jesus told us no one knows the day or the hour of his return. In fact, he said to us in Luke chapter 19, verse 13, Occupy till I come. In other words, root in, be faithful, fulfill the calling that God has placed upon your life. Beware of date setting, for date setting always ends up upsetting Look for the Lord Jesus, but live faithfully and responsibly. Jesus taught us about his return, not as a cop-out, but as a comfort. When the Lord returns, he wants us to be faithful at the stations where he has placed us. Martin Luther used to say that if he knew the Lord was coming back tomorrow, he would go out and plant a tree today. The idea being to be responsible with today, regardless of what tomorrow might bring. I heard it put this way. Live as if Jesus is coming back today. Plan as if he won't return for a thousand years. That's a good strategy. But because there were some believers in the church who were so hopeful of the rapture that it could occur at any moment, some of them mistakenly had quit their jobs. Irresponsibly, they had bailed out on life and they were living off of the benevolence of the fellowship. This was not the example Paul had set. He reminds them that while in Thessalonica, his days were spent perspiring so that he could preach to them at night. He was an apostle and he was entitled to the support of the church, but instead Paul worked to pay his way and to minister to them. Paul says plainly in verse 10, he says, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Did you read that? Chapter 3, verse 10. If anyone will not work, neither shall Shall he eat? Guys, if a person isn't willing to work, he shouldn't eat. No loaves for the loafer. Obviously, some people are unable to work because of an injury or an illness, or perhaps they've been laid off. Other people work, but because they've mismanaged their money, they've wound up in need. In both cases, we need to help the needy person. But when a person can work and doesn't work, then we do that person a disservice and we disobey the Lord to feed that person because in doing so, we are feeding an irresponsible lifestyle. Oh, but there's some tender hearts in the fellowship that'll say, "But, but that person will go hungry. Well, the Bible says, let him go hungry. So be it. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. We're called on by God to bear with one another. But the one sin for which there is zero tolerance is the sin of laziness. Moochers need to be shown the door. It reminds me of the two deadbeats who were thinking about going to Australia. One of the guys said to the other, Man, I've heard that there's a diamond mine down under where the diamonds just lay on the surface of the ground. And all you've got to do is just bend down and pick them up. His lazy buddy shot back, You have to bend down? (laughs) There's actually a guy in New York City, I've heard, who enjoys fine foods. But he doesn't like to work. And 31 times now, 31 times, He's entered a restaurant. He's eaten top-notch cuisine. Then he shrugged his shoulders upon receiving the check and has waited for the NYPD to haul him off to jail. The police say he actually looks forward to going to jail because he gets three square meals a day, a warm place, and a dry place to sleep. Over the last five years, this person has cost the taxpayers of New York City $250,000 to feed and clothe and house this one lazy man. Hey, let me warn you. There are people who likewise refuse to work, but they love to come to church. In fact, they travel from city to city mooching and milking the body of Christ for a free meal or for a couple of nights lodging there are people who actually make a good living duping God's people hey if a man's not willing to work he shouldn't be allowed to eat take note the word work appears in your Bible 350 times prior to the fall God put Adam in the garden of Eden To do what? To tend it and to work it. Work was not the result of sin. Work was not a result of the curse. Work was an original component of paradise. I'm not sure we shouldn't tie all our benevolence to some form of constructive work. God called Moses while he was tending sheep. He came to Gideon while he was threshing wheat. Jesus appointed four disciples after they had been out fishing and mending their nets. Don't assume you have to quit your job and move to the mountaintop to hear from God. God comes to us while we work. Work is a good thing. Here's what had happened in Thessalonica. The believers had given up their jobs and they, were, they had nothing else to do. And as a result, too much idle time was getting them into trouble. Paul says in verse 11, we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all. But what? But they become busybodies. Hey, idleness is the devil's workshop. You've heard it. One of the benefits of working is it just keeps you out of a lot of trouble. (laughs) Verses 12 and 13 tell us that there are two pursuits that should occupy every Christian. Making a living and doing good. Guys, be diligent and faithful at both. Paul closes in verse 17. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. Remember, the Thessalonians had been duped once. They had received a letter, supposedly from Paul, but it turned out to be a forgery. Paul says to be sure it's his letter, and to do so, check the signature. Though he dictated his letters, he always took the pen at the end and signed his name personally at the bottom. His signature was the stamp of authenticity for his letters. Verse 18 closes. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And there we have... Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians.